You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Right. So this is wholly unscripted and barely edited, save for the time, and might contain spoilers. But if you've ever been curious as to what goes on with a writer when he sits down with some friends at a coffee table, a couch, or somewhere outside, here's your chance to find out. This is Here Be Tigers. Hi, all. I'm your host, Jared Zerf, and this is Here Be Tigers, the show where we learn about the real and fictional world, those who create, and what inspires. For those of you from the ESO who are listening for the first time, welcome. I look forward to sharing our new home. And of course, for those of you who have been waiting for the conclusion to our piece on where to begin things, well, here you go. You had earlier said that you find, particularly in the storytelling games you like to run, it's often challenging to begin. Uh, yeah, especially in one-shots. Uh, um, is that partly a matter of trying to set the world for the players? It's, it's partly... Well, the idea is, I guess in, in every form of medium, we've just been talking about this, there's this initial, let's call it a conversation, because sure. we're going into role-playing games, but it's a, it doesn't matter if it's a book, it's a movie, it's a, it's a there's conversation. There's always a dialogue that occurs between one agent and another, whether it is the medium and the person experiencing it. Exactly. You need to get on the same page. Uh, I've heard people talk about it in in science fiction books that, um, um, you know, where it's like, how can you pack as much information into a sentence as possible without overloading? Uh, You need... No! (laughs) They can stop. Yeah. But yeah, you need to do it in such a way that it's not... I'm laughing because I was working on a sentence the other day. And it was to lay out a little bit of context to the world. I think it was reference about currency in relation to something the character was digging up. And the earliest draft of the sentence was like that. The, okay, it conveys this currency, the earlier denomination, and this weird object that can be exchanged for. And I went, okay, one proper noun, one thing italicized, mm-hmm. the rest is common English to describe things. Because what the fuck is the reader going to know otherwise? Exactly. And in in a movie, you've got to establish enough uh, enough of a basis of okay, what kind of world are we in? Who's this asshole on the screen, and why should I care about him? You know, <laughs> yes. or her. You know, you could just go meta and have a slow line. Who's this asshole? <laughs> yeah. Why should you care? And and so all of it, it's a matter of getting the audience, well, everyone participating in the story on the same page, or at least close enough to to start working. Well, in role playing games. You've got this vision in the, 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 the storyteller's story. head. Sure. And you've got to get the players on the same page. But, and here's the, and the other side of it is, you, it can't be on rails. So you've also got the images in the, the player's head, and you've got to get the storyteller on the same page as well. He's got, everything's got to be brought together, not, not, not just told enough that all of a sudden, you know, the, the, you know, the players know what the storyteller's thinking of. You, you've got to put it together as this shared story point. And I find that initial setup, not in the getting everyone to understand what's going on in front of them, but getting everyone to care about it. Yes. In the, not in the same way, but in a close enough way that they're not going to go in completely separate directions. So, quick pull. How many times have you started a story at an inn or other public gathering place? I very rapidly start, stopped doing that because it's impossible <laughs> to get it out of there. I don't know where this idea of you started an inn... I'm going to start a bar fight. Oh, no. The only reason that ever worked was 
was so many of the, the very old Dungeons & Dragons games, which were literally just find the quest, go on the quest. And in many cases later translated to early TSR fantasy novels. Right. Or transcribed. You know, that, that's how it all started back when the stories were, you know... Uh, Dragonlance was Margaret Rice and Tracy Hickman's tabletop game. Yeah. Really? Which is actually one of the, 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 the cases of where randomly generated caused a character because that, that wizard, Raceland, having oh, that God, ridiculously yeah. low constitution. And then the question of, well, okay, if this is the nature of this character, what is he like? Why is he frail narratively? Mm-hmm. And why is his brother, who turns out to be boisterous but not as insightful or not as attuned to the world? But I find it difficult setting up that initial setup. I find it difficult getting everybody... Um, to agree on the why now. To, yeah, basically. Uh, also the what now. Uh, but yes. that's the same essential thing. Why are we acting the way we're acting? Well, it's but the, we're not yet. It's the why, the now, and mm. the why now. Because some people are perfectly willing to do a thing, but just not at the moment until they've done the thing they want to do. Right. You, you, they get presented with this, and it's like, okay. I mean, I, I um, currently we're doing a Monster of the Week game on Otter Worlds, and so it's Buffy. Yeah, Buffy, Supernatural, X Files, Army of Darkness. Yeah. You know, fighting the the, the monster of the week. It's like playing that kind of Mutel TV series. And uh, I got the, the, the players knowing that there was a crashed alien spaceship in the middle of a forest and knowing they wanted to do something about it. But based on the way the characters um, came up, the idea of what specifically they were going to do about it and why they, they would care about it this way or that way, there was no same well, page. Somebody was convinced that his wife was abducted by aliens. And don't get me wrong, as a, you know, as a story... Actually, it's a wonderful starting point because the characters are dominating. The problem is it's a one-shot, so trying to get this to happen... <laughs> get in, them to in, the story, yeah, the beats. The beats of the story. Yeah. It's like, I only have a limited amount of time. And so it's not that I think we we failed at it. It's that I feel like there there was something that I was missing in the beginning that could have made it go more smoothly. Since we're talking the one-shots and... By no means was Fellowship a classic one shot. <laughs> that was part of the challenge, seeing if we could well, even get it down to that. Uh, that was the yeah with with Fellowship. It's like I don't think we really got to the story until like the very end of a two hour session. <laughs> Not my fault. <laughs> Quiet. Well, on that on that uh, note, it's not my fault. <laughs> Getting the monster of the week came off the ground. Exactly. <laughs> so Ken bristled at this, but the the opening parade. And that was a question of, well, yeah, I could, I could, and it would be classic to open out the feast. Mm. But part of what, oddly enough, despite us doing the hour-long session of the bonds and the characters and the stories and the adventures previously, including unseating you, the villain, there's still that element of what the characters and the players are like in their actual yeah, I game. I wouldn't have given up the parade for anything. No, yeah. and th- because that was going to set the mood for the right. feast. And, and, and having, and I, the same with Monster of the Week. All of the sniping about what you're actually going to do and, and how, and, and are we actually gonna, I mean, I kept throwing things at you guys to, to like, oh, okay, you see, you know, a deer. Well, it is you, almost you, like lighting a fire. You can sit there and hit the rock and hit the rock and you're never gonna know precisely which spark is gonna be the one to ignite. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I wanna play with 
when I, I don't think I can do this with End of the World, but I, I'm, I may give it some thought. I can definitely do it with Paranoia, but I'm not, <laughs> uh, is, is, for the one shots anyway. Sure. This, I wouldn't necessarily do this for, you know, um, long form, maybe a little bit, but is sit down and go, okay, well, what are you looking for? What, what journey are you looking for this character to go through? So that it's less about, okay, finding the why now and more about, okay, well, how can I, it's not the how. It's not how can I set the bait to to lure you along the path. It's more along the lines of your character. You want your character to be hooked. How do you want your character to be right, hooked? Because the thing to keep in mind is that yes, there's a character, but there's a human being behind that person right. making decisions. And what are you interested in that that person facing? And they're going to notice manipulation. Yeah. So you don't want. Okay, this is why I'm involved in the story. You, you want. You want like I, I don't want to go. Uh, I have this story in mind. You know, I want to drag you into it. What's the best way? I, 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 instead, I want to go. I have this story in mind. What story do you have in mind for the character? How can we merge these two? So, one shot or not, what has been your favorite beginning? Of, um, I mean, of ta- of a tabletop. Yeah. Oh, she. Because beginnings in. Uh, they're always rougher than they, they you feel like they should be because you're always judging them by what the game becomes. Yeah, they're like a pilot in so many ways, right? Mm. But I guess maybe favorite's the wrong word. One that drew you in immediately or provided you with something early on that just grabbed you and said, "Okay, I want." I would go. A lot of these are the the, the good uh, powered by apocalypse games that really try to make the characters a little you know. Uh, wrapped together, right? Through the idea of bonds that you have pre-existing relationships. Yeah, that that all that very much helps because then it's like because sometimes you don't even need to put like a very coherent story in front. Sometimes you can let the story write itself. <laughs> sometimes the bonds are just I'm with Dingus. There are people I've seen be able to run a game where it's along the lines of Hey, you made the characters. Okay, I'm going to go into the back room for like 20 minutes and I'm going to come out with a story to throw you guys through. And and it's gonna it's gonna be written mostly by the characters you made. I can't do it. I, I've tried. I can get passable stories to occur. Um, if they're long-form games, uh, you start out with a rocky story or two in the beginning and then you, you move on. But I can't ad-lib. I, I can do a lot of ad-libbing, but I need enough structure underneath mm-hmm. it. And I need time to think about that structure. My favorite, and this was not a planned one, we were doing the 5e, this is for you know testing, we were doing the 5e beta test. So you guys were, were all uneasy about the mechanics because we're not sure if these rules are going to let us play characters that are fun. Because ultimately the point of this is to have a fun time right. telling a story. And sometimes the rules are an impediment to that. And you have to ignore them or massage them to a thing that makes them fun for you. So there was a bit of reluctance or reticence on the part of the group to do this. But we said, well, let's try. We've been playing this game system for iteration after iteration. It's the fifth one. Let's give it a shot. This was, I think, shortly before we started Dungeon World and uh, the others. It was you, Pablo, Greg, and I think Max. Maybe one other. So We did several iterations of yeah, the start. There's a particular one. You all sat there, you were shattering, going over your character sheets, and then you looked at me expectantly going, all right, how are we starting this? And I wasn't planning this at the beginning, but it felt so right. Everyone roll a d20. And you all stared at me horrified <laughs> because nothing good was going to happen <laughs> so there's the meta game right there of the okay what has he done to us and the answer was i don't know what i've done to you yet let me find out what the random system says has happened to you and as you're rolling i went 
mm, airship crash. So depending on what you roll is where you are and what you're at. It's not a... I have had a couple of times where, like, with a story in media res. Yeah. And in media res is a great way of starting, provided, like, like there's enough enough knowledge conveyed quickly enough that the characters well, know what's going on. We very quickly sussed out your students. You're traveling together. There's a teacher. And you're pinned. You're on fire. You escape safely. Mm. And since the game didn't allow for bonds to develop prior to the actual play... It was up to you, the players, and me as a storyteller in those initial moments to see where that could be established and then to push and pull on that throughout the rest of it. I don't think the mechanics were particularly astute in terms of affecting that, but to your credit as a group, you went with it. Mm -hmm. Because that now, that we have to act, we don't have time to observe every little detail, to spend 20 minutes or the first 20 pages of the screenplay or the book going, here is my teacup. It is the teacup on which everything else precipitates. I'm going to narrate to you the history of this teacup. It'll become relevant 300 pages later when it is used to poison the king. That can be interesting. Mm. There are books like, for instance, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I don't know if you've read it. I have. What did you think of the opening? I'm honestly not remembering th- the opening at the moment. I'm remembering later on when it's when they started getting into the war, right? Yeah, and wasn't it? Wasn't it, uh, Mr. Norell, like pitching the idea? Does yes. that how it's open? I think so. He's pitching it to the Society of Magicians that actual magic is real, and it's funny because I don't really remember more than that. I remember instead, and not fully, but details of the other character, Jonathan Strange origin, mm. and that farm he grew up on. That gave you the sense of who he was and why he would be so reckless with all of this. And it comes about halfway through the book. And I now remember being so angry because I wanted that chapter at the damn beginning of the book. (laughs) So that I would care. Yeah. And that was my problem with Mr. Norrell. He was an interesting person, but I didn't give a damn about him. Yeah. That's the, and that's the real thing is the, uh, sometimes, You've got the, uh, one of the issues with the Monster of the Week campaign is that the characters were more interesting than the setup for the story, which in a long form campaign is fantastic. Because that's what you're going to follow. Exactly. You want the characters um, to, to do that kind of thing. But that's also a failure on my part in some ways of making the initial setup interesting enough. <laughs> Not that it has to overshadow the characters, it shouldn't do that. Um, but you also gave us an hour to ham up the character development. This is true. So we were going to use it. Oh, of course. Because you have to with the, the, these games. I can't do the in-media res thing with either of the two games that I've got playing for the rest of this season of Otter Worlds. Uh, End of the World is specifically supposed to start out as regular people going about their lives when the apocalypse <laughs> if you happens. you did in media res, it's the world's ending, you lose. Yeah, exactly. There's there's no point. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, paranoia, I can definitely start in media res. However, it, um, it, it means bypassing wonderful situations where you talk to friend computer. Well, here's, my, here's a possible way. Because you get your clear clones, right? Oh, yeah. So 
Oh, I, I can, I've already thought of, like, since we brought up in Media Res, I've thought of three different ways of okay, starting Paranoia in Media really Res. Okay, fun way, regardless of the, actual mechanic, of the actual specifics of it, is to give people the opportunity to suss out whether they're about to be cloned or not, <laughs> and what they're, about, what they're going to remember by the time they meet Friend Computer. Yeah, and I was, mine was actually, all, like, all the players, let's say there were five players, all of the tubes come down, and five clones are deposited in players, and they see... The dismembered corpses of their previous body, <laughs> but something's gone wrong, and they do not remember what the mission is supposed to be. Oh God! And front computer is there to berate them. <laughs> I am considering it. it. It's not bad. One of the front computer is concerned. I adored this one uh, the, to just really give you an idea of what paranoia is like. It's supposed to be Red Dwarf and and uh, um, Douglas Adams stuff. Um, in a post-apocalyptic, uh, you know, one of those, you're, you know, like bunker style scenarios, the huge bunker. Like, um, so, so it's this really totalitarian dystopian society and no one knows how long it's been that way and, and underground, etc. where the computer rules all. In the most recent release, one of the sample missions you can go on, well, everything's divided by color. All rank is by color going right. from the lowest ultraviolet, I mean, the lowest uh, infrared to the highest ultraviolet. And I'm trying to remember, I believe ultraviolet's like white corridors or something like that. Um, it's, it's, it's basically... This, Are there pejoratives for calling people a royal? This is, this is supposed to be, this, this, this corridor is supposed to be orange. So sure. uh, if you orange or above, people can go through it or something like that. It got painted the wrong color. It got painted... I think it's black or something like that, which just means only ultraviolet can go through it. It might, you know, sure. or, or whatever. I, I'm forgetting the color. It is one of the major thoroughfares, like to get supplies to this one area. <laughs> People are like, like but only can, the violet can go through it. And, and then, and they're not going through. So like these, this needs to be taken care of. The problem is, even though you're on a mission, your mission is to figure out why no no one's going, like, no supplies are going to the other end. Why, like, the parts needed to repair this facility on this end aren't going through. People have reported that the, 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 the color was wrong. The computer's paranoid, right? And, um... So it's not that the color's wrong, it's that they're seeing the wrong color. It's basically along the lines of, of something's wrong with the cameras, the computer thinks people are lying to it. You cannot report that the hallway is the wrong color. The computers are at the point where it will summarily execute anyone who tries to lie to it about the color of the hallway. As Which is it clearly sees purple. It. Yeah, exactly. It, or it's, yellow. Or, or whatever it's supposed to be. Uh, or it's it's, it's um, striated. Yeah. So you can't just repaint it. That would you're not allowed to have the colors of paint that you're supposed to have. That's or, violating the social order. It's yeah, exactly. That's that would be wrong. And there's one or two other things going on that, 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 that block off some of the, the obvious ones. So you're in the position where your mission cannot be fulfilled because the most obvious way of fulfilling your mission will get you executed. Um, so it engenders deviousness. Oh, yeah. One of the suggested paths is doing something to sabotage the entire hallway, lighting it on fire, so the entire thing's covered with scorch marks and going, hey, um, can, can, uh, you know, friend computer, uh, there's been damage to this hallway. Can we, we need a repair? A, yeah, can we repent, re- request a repaint of the hallway, you know, because it's covered in scorch marks. And the computer goes, oh, okay, fine, what, what color do you, are, are you requesting? And then you request the right color. 
It's on the way. Um, you know, but you have to do stuff like that. And that's paranoia in a nutshell. So those kind of things were, you know, you come down and the dismembered bodies of your previous clones and you don't remember the mission. Oh, it fits perfectly. I like that idea. Especially um, because usually everybody has individual missions. You could remember those just fine. And those are typically contradictory to each other. Very much so. Although this most recent one, they're trying to back uh, off a little bit on the internicide, uh, or to, you know, um, uh, side of things. They so paranoia came out, I believe, in in the late eighties, uh, at a time when role playing games were very much an antagonistic relationship between the DM and the players, and the players and, and the players, and the players and the players. And this was considered just fine throughout the through over the course of the late nineties and all of the aughts. People started realizing, you know, having people just fighting each other at the table, and, and it tends to cause a lot of fights. And it, it's against cooperative storytelling, uh, which is not to say cooperative storytelling can't involve people fighting. No, but, I've never told a story with other people that's involved <laughs> around conflicts internally. But if you're just trying to get people to backstab each other for the sake of backstabbing each other, rather than because their characters naturally would... Then why not play Galactica the board game? Exactly. So they actually, Paranoia was like, oh, finally going, you know, maybe we should back off on, and it's still got some elements of it, but it's along the lines of don't shoot people in the back just because you can have a reason for it. The Game Master will offer you plenty. Hello, podcast fans. My name is Chris Jones, and I'm here to tell you about the Nerd Bliss Podcast. Now, of all the geek-oriented podcasts out there, we are definitely one of them. Yes, we talk about Star Trek and Star Wars and cosplay and Marvel and DC and the usual. But as geeks, we embrace anyone with very specialized knowledge, like triathletes or improv comedians or musicians. So we try to bring them in and let them share their geekiness with you to help broaden some horizons. And maybe you'll learn something. Maybe we'll learn something. You can find our entire catalog at nerdlesspodcast.com on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play Music, Player FM, and we are now proud to be a part of the ESO Network. Once again, we are the Nerd Bliss Podcast. Thank you and Pod Bliss. There are a few rules from the games we've been playing or talking about lately that I find are distillable across media. One of them, I don't know how to describe the rule yet, but I found it in my own writing useful, which is that I think Dungeon World describes it as be a fan of the characters and the mm-hmm. players, but allow the characters to tell you the story. Yeah. Show you what the story is. It's, why, why do you think I brought in the Huntsman in the second one? I meant to bring him in the first one. He was always a character, though he got developed in a different way by the time I ended up bringing him around. I brought him in precisely because... He, Having that back and forth, you know, where everyone's on a different page, but willing to say strange things to each other and respond in kind, meant you were asking for characters who would also do that. Not just characters. You don't want, you, you wanted people who could roll with the strange. Not everyone had to, but some Somebody people is. had to. So, um, the, the people in the, uh, SETI camp could not 
role with the strange. They 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 were going to act like they were going to act. They were they were special agents mm-hmm. and, and soldiers. They were the consistency. They have right. to follow the process to know what the result is. If you had managed to get through to someone who was actually a member of SETI rather than just the escort, that might have changed. We're not patient enough. I I like the uh, and. Just speaking from experience, when I first ran you through Monster of the Week and you were playing, you were doing the, the thing in the the, uh, um, the morgue at the police this station. The Rat King, right? Yeah, this, this is the Rat King one, and and you had this detective. That makes sense because detectives, well, each case is different. They have to be willing to put up with some things, aberrations, and, or changes. And, in, and also, you were in the morgue. The guy who was the, the the coroner was much more willing to put up with strange explanations than the detective was. Well, you were in the morgue; it was kind of his show. She, on the other hand, was only going to put up with so much. So when you lit the corpse on fire, she <laughs> threw you in jail. It was to reveal evidence, <laughs> and that was, and that was fun being able to do that. And that's also why I had them continue attacking when you burst into the SETI camp because it's like you're going to have to deal with that. It leads to, I think, the second thing, which is applicable to stories, and particularly when you're looking at the why now or where to begin. Let everything be at risk, mm-hmm. and I don't mean in the sense that. You should gleefully go around hatching, you know, butchering and hacking up any part of the story characters or making everything as well begun as possible. But in the moment when people are doing or acting or following who they are and what they want to be, what are they willing to take, change, mm-hmm. or let fall away? And you can love what they destroy or who they are regardless, but it doesn't mean what they're going to do is nice or good or great. I will tease it now, but there is a conversation I will talk about much later called the Cannibal Lecture, where I will give you the question a friend Rob Johnson have asked me. He said something to the effect of, so is it like, you know, with a teacup or does he actually, you know, chow down and eat them? You know, like bodily. And at that point, I I had not determined this as many years ago an answer. But by him asking me that, I had to go, which of those is real and which of those is a contrivance? That is me being uncomfortable with what is the actual story. Whether the reader is comfortable with that or not, I don't know. <laughs> It'll depend on how I end up describing certain things. I wasn't comfortable with everything I wrote, but to Gabriel Pina's point, if you're not surprising yourself, you're not surprising the reader. So yes, let everything be at risk so that you, even in your own inclinations or proclivities or desires for where the story should go are not inhibiting where it is going already. Mm -hmm. And the last one, I think the apocalypse system uses the phrase golden opportunities. Yeah. What if, how would you describe it? So the golden opportunities are, so normally the, the basic way in apocalypse it works is that the DM doesn't roll things. Or the you know the the, the game master doesn't yeah. roll a thing. Um, he he reacts to what the players do, and he gets uh, two kinds of moves: soft moves, which he can do almost any time, um, and hard moves, which are usually very unpleasant for the characters. Soft moves are usually stuff like foreshadowing. You hear like, "Oh, all of the, the birds in the forest have gone silent, and now it's deathly still." Or it could be in the middle of combat, and it's like the orc raises its sword and is about to, you know, and is about to strike at you, what do you do? Those are both soft moves. Hard moves are things like, um, 
like a tree falling on you or being attacked <laughs> by a tiger or that you know orc attacking you with his sword and actually dealing damage. Um, Taking your arm. In general, hard moves are only done when the characters have a reasonable... Uh, it's reasonable to expect that they could. Or when the characters roll really badly. Or have put themselves in a dire situation. Well, that's when golden opportunities uh, arrive. There is an exception. You don't have to foreshadow a hard move, and you don't have to wait for a bad roll when the characters do something where it is so blindingly obvious after once when they do it that a hard move has to happen right there. That... It has to happen right there. In other words, it, it is not necessarily obvious that the well, characters to, must have known it has that to it happen happened. in the sense that this is the inevitable consequence right. yeah. of you your may, actions. Right. You may not have realized it was the inevitable consequence. But you are about to. But you are about to. There was no way. Now, usually it, it's based on you probably should have had some indication already. Not that you had to have foreshadowing, but, but like if, if, I set up that you were in the middle of, you know, uh, the Florida Everglades and you were tromping around through. Um, and you decide to go, you know, and you decide to randomly kick a log. I do not have to give you any foreshadowing to have that log turn out to be an alligator. All right. There was enough there already. You, you didn't need me to, 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 you know, connect the dots for you. <laughs> Suddenly gators. Suddenly gators. To cite one from Jared's uh, uh, Academy World game... If the figure most closely associated with death in this setting gives you a knife... <laughs> no, no. The golden opportunity was the question Pablo asked. <laughs> How do I get... Out? No, no. Okay. I, wasn't, I wasn't going with, like, with, with, uh, okay, um, go ahead. The, with that. Uh, though that's true. It, it, Pablo asked the question... Uh, or not uh, Pablo, because you go by character name. Maximilian, and, Pablo's character, right. asked effectively death the question, How do I get out of here? And death hands him a knife. Cut to multiple chapters later. I'm not going to get into why it involved convincing a unicorn in a nightmare to create another unicorn out of Maximilian's own flesh and bone. The question and he, was, how do I make a real burning unicorn? Which, which we already knew that that that, that, uh, um, that the unicorn could make things out of Maximilian's bone. Right. So the nightmare responded, one of the things you will need is something, a piece of something precious to you. So, Maximilian cuts off his own arm with a knife. That Not just it. cuts off his own arm. That would have been bad, but he that's the kind of choice his character made. He cut off his own arm. With the with, knife that death gave him. With the knife to that death gave him. answer the question, how do I get out of here? And that's a golden opportunity. Because at that moment, it doesn't matter that there's no foreshadowing. I mean, there was, but chapters and chapters ago. It doesn't matter that there was no warning, that, that nothing had happened recently. I, I could have just said, you die. But again... We're talking about the inevitable, and Maximilian was trying to be a, hero a heroic character. Right. He had a, a means by which he could do stupid and reckless things. Mm -hmm. If he rolled poorly, the consequences would be disastrous. Right. So he rolled spectacularly in the best and worst way possible. He also rolled a failure, an absolute and utter failure. So I guess that isn't a golden opportunity because there was still a well, failure no. involved. The golden opportunity was that it was a spectacular failure. Because, yes, by the rules themselves, it's, you're dead. Well, I mean, yeah. It's, you don't talk to death, you don't bargain with death, it's, you're dead. But he, because of his character's nature and what he was trying to accomplish, we end up embarking on this journey as Maximilian tries to convince death not to let him go. And is more or less told, if you, you could probably phrase it better than I could, but 
Well, basically along the lines of, if you die again, it's going to be final. Until you go through the gate, which was this big journey. Basically, go through this gate and do what I want you to do, or you will soon perish an inevitable, ignoble, and uncared for death. You will not matter. No one will know. No one will even believe you ever were. So the worst thing possible to this person, to this character who wished to be the most heroic thing in the world of a family who deemed themselves heroes, death said, yes, I will let you live on this one condition. Maximilian, not realizing that the stuff you do when no one knows is still heroic. Something he learned much later, including something that partially twisted himself out of this fate because he more or less killed himself again. Because <laughs> he keeps doing that because that character is all about self-sacrifice and not loving himself <laughs> enough to prevent that from happening because he cares for other things too much, including his own family. There, These are not things we knew in the moments those roles happened. But by allowing the opportunity and the inevitability of that to follow, the, okay, yes, I could just say you're dead. And that means this story is a different kind of story, mm-hmm. in a sense. It's the, yes, you can take bold risks, but if you fail, you go. And that's a fine story to tell. Well, I mean, it's here's the thing. On a lot of games, there's there's a, there are combat mechanics and all that, and and Dungeon World, which is what this game is run on, is no different. Except that the way we've been playing all along is very very combat light, with uh, the very rarely in in any combat is it really about rolling dice to damage, and very rarely are the stakes which side dies. Well, it's more so, for control of. The flow of the narrative and what happens, who's in a position of advantage right. or opportunity. Right, and, and that's just the particular way we've been playing. When I was running Dungeon World and we were doing more of a classic D&D thing, we still actually tended to move away from standard combat, but it happened more often. Right. It's, it, dungeon, you know, the, the Academy game just happens to really eschew combat a lot. It's just not who the that, characters are. It became apparent that's just the way you guys wanted to navigate and explore the world. Exactly. So it's not about dying in combat, which is, if that's what happens, that's what happens. Right, and you can use the system to do glorious, brutal combat. Of course. You know, classic Conan. Exactly. Because, again, the golden opportunity and other rules ask, what is this? Follow the story. What is the inevitable? Yes. But what is going to be the most interesting? Right. What's going to move the story forward? Mm -hmm. And if Maximilian dies and they don't get what they want, which is going to result in them all being dead or at complete risk, yeah, maybe that kind of story is where things end. But I didn't, in my gut, and a lot of this boils down to as a creative regardless of the medium you're working in, going, what do I and my gut feel is right here mm. in this moment? What do I believe the characters are telling me? What do I believe the story is leading to? I made the call of, well, death did give him the knife. Why? If you give someone the Chekhov's gun, they're going to use it. Yeah. But why would death give him the Chekhov, the knife, the one knife, Scrimshaw, and not expect him to use it, one. And two, how long is Death willing to wait until he does, and what does he want out of that? Those are things I wanted to know, and I hadn't expected to answer them until the character provided the opportunity. And this was honestly, I think, the point where Maximilian defined himself as someone willing of the most extreme, to commit the most extreme forms of self-sacrifice, and yet somehow survive them. 
That's basically the point that he became this thing that is never in the same form for more than a couple of sessions. Not sessions, a couple of stories. Because he keeps changing. But uh, Except for his, yeah, we should answer it, except for his essential nature, which he, in a way, keeps distilling down mm-hmm. toward. There's a, a friend of mine, Louisa, which a friend of hers, and I've told this in probably other milieus before, she was going through a difficult time in her life with difficult people. And her friend, as a form of perhaps a bitter pill of comfort, said, it's not that we change as we, all, we get older. It's more that we become more ourselves. We cast off what is non-essential, what is merely the trapping or the acting or the performances, the behaviors we, t- we took upon. And in that sense, it almost describes Maximilian's character as an evolution as these opportunities have emerged. I think the best way to encapsulate golden opportunities then is when the three of you found your, your distinct ways of dying. And Maximilian had at this point one final remnant of his brother. It was a little bit of light because Maximilian had become, it was always described as living in his brother's shadow. And his brother was this boisterous, radiant hero. And despite their parting or from each other and that being fraught, he had managed to salvage this one tiny bit of his brother Adelbert and was now in this moment fighting his death, which was the Darth Vader mm-hmm. to go full circle. It was the haunting specter of his father, the thing that he was always living in the shadow of and trying to defend himself off from. And he said, I'm going to defend. And I asked, defend what? Yeah, because you don't just defend, like, there is no defend yourself role from an attack. That's not how, how Dungeon World works. If you you're defending, you're defending you're... something or someone. So you can defend, you can try to protect yourself from harm. You, and You can, but it doesn't actually no. work as a role. That's really more of a, uh, you know, so, try to get out yeah, of the way. Basically, kind of. yeah. You, there there, there, I guess, no, Dungeon World does have a defend, but it, it it's, no, it's it's defy danger. Yeah, is what it's basically, called. do I try to get away from the harm or do I try to protect something? And those are two different avenues of solution. He chose the, I'm going to defend something. He ruled for how many options he would be able to protect, how many things or how many choices he would have in the moment of applying his narrative control. He ruled poorly. He had one choice. So I said, defend what? Mm -hmm. And he said, the last light of my brother, last little bit of Edelbert, I'm going to protect that. Because as far as he was concerned in that moment, if that went, so did his brother forever. Which may or may not have been true. Quite possibly. Now, the way monsters or adversaries tend to work in this system is that they, they, can, they assi- can hurt. Yeah. For, for the combat's sake, they basically usually have a defense and a number of hit points. And uh, if, if it's going to be combat related, they have a certain amount of damage that they but can the, do. But generally speaking, the more relevant part of them are exactly what are their natures? What do they, they want? They have a couple of moves. Those moves are not well defined. If you're used to playing Dungeons and Dragons, those moves are not well defined Dungeons and Dragons moves that say, well, these are your targets. These are your, you they know. Are Gestures. Yeah. They're narrative components. So I think that when I, the first version I ever saw was they were talking about dru- like the animals druids could become. And uh, um, an elephant had the move, trample stuff underfoot. That's the sum total of the move. It's not a damage amount. It's not a anything. Elephants just do that. Yeah, it's, I think dragons is something similar. Burn it to the ground. Exactly. And what is it? Doesn't matter. Dragon burns it to the ground. 
So this That's particular threat. So this particular creature that uh, Maximilian was fighting had the move. There were three of them. The last of them, and one I was unlikely to use unless the opportunity presented itself, was sever the last of what's left, or something to that effect. Devour the remaining, the last, the remaining bit, or something. To yeah, that. something like that. So again, this dark vader, this shadowy vision of his father fighting him, man as a giant axe, is intimidating. Maximilian is protecting this one little bit of light that's his brother. He gets that. That's where he applied his narrative control. I get to declare this thing is safe from the, the adversary I am fighting. But, again, the golden opportunity rears itself. What is not safe? Going back to what I said before, let everything be at risk. Mm-hmm. If he defends the light, what is he not protecting? Himself, his body, his being, his very essence. Yes. And so Maximilian, in that point, and I will admit I was hesitant to do this. Because this is a great amount. This is where the I think partly you see the difference between, say, although honestly, if even if I were writing this, I'd probably bite my tongue for a second and go, is this right? And ask my gut, yay or nay. Do I take this amount of control away from the player, whether it's the game, the reader, and his or her expectations? Do I subvert those sufficiently? You know, is this the part of the story where Maximilian finally does die? Does he learn that maybe he's given up too much? Is that the story we're going for? Or does he change so fundamentally that he can no longer be who he was? Mm-hmm. And I had written up a, if Maximilian becomes a thing of pure shadow, here's what he plays from now on. And Pablo described his whole act of defending his brother and telling me what this looked like because the players have that level of narrative control. And I went, okay, no, that's what happens. Yeah. Now let me tell you what happens to you. <laughs> and I described it at the end of which I opened up my little briefcase and handed him who he was now. A creature of pure shadow. Because the Maximilian of old, the would-be hero, had been devoured. I, this is a year and a half into the game, I think, at that point, had never planned. I don't think any of us had expected the story to go in a direction like that. Oh, no. By, by the time we were at this point, the, the story... Uh, was so far different from what we initially planned. But, but that's fine, because that's later on. It's, uh, you know, stories grow. That's why that's why we said earlier that, uh, that, that the opening story, is all, like in a long form, is always going to seem like a pilot, because things haven't been defined enough. This is Mandy, the host of Caster Quest, inviting you to enjoy our podcast where we explore the rich and vibrant world of Patrick Rothfuss's best-selling fantasy series, The Kingkiller Chronicle, soon to be adapted as a major motion picture and television show produced by the award-winning creator of Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Hungry for more content? Perhaps you will enjoy our recaps of HBO's Game of Thrones, Over the Garden Wall, animated Batman films, or our world-famous erotic fanfiction reads. Whatever you're in the mood for, if you love a good story, humor, impromptu parody songs, and thousands of pop culture references, you'll enjoy our show. You can find Cast Request on SoundCloud, iTunes, and of course, our amazing network, the Earth Station One Network, at esopodcast.com. Any parting lessons you want to touch upon or anything that you I mean you've been running these games for about as long as I have I was actually going to say we should just go through some of the games we've run and just briefly briefly say what was the why now moment at the very beginning oh god so I'll I'll, I'll open up with 
Um, one of the first games I... Re- Actually, it was the first game I ran that you were in. That, uh, I think, was the Teleran. But the why now moment for Teleran, uh, actually, because I have always had a problem, an issue with beginnings, I set the game up as the group was a bunch of troubleshooters. And so every story, it would be clients coming and saying, we've got, I've got this issue. And often I'd give them more than one and they'd get to choose which one they wanted to do. <laughs> and in them some both. cases, it would became combine them both. In one of the most bizarre cases, that it not only, not only did they decide to combine them both, but I, when I looked down at the notes, I realized, this is going to work. <laughs> I'm not even going to have to change that much, and this is going to work. It's going to make things epically terrible, but it's going to work. And I don't see epically terrible as a problem. No. But um, that was it. That was how I got around it. So the the, the why now was it, it essentially, I don't know if it was in character, I mean, if they the character's first mission together or not. But it was definitely um, one of the early mi- uh, the the early jobs that they they did, and uh, that was why they why they were acting at that particular point in time. Uh, it wasn't actually it, it, from the point of view of the character's overall story. It probably was in media res. Uh, it wasn't yeah, their first mission. mission. That's yeah. correct. Because we'd done a bit of basically just essential. Who's the boss? Who's doing what? What are our essential roles? Mm-hmm. And go to town. I think the first game. I don't know if it was the very first, but certainly one of the earliest games around. Second edition, this is maybe when I was 14 or 15. So brilliantly done, as you can imagine. <laughs> I was still railroading people at that point. Me too. <laughs> so I love Planescape as a setting. It has a lot of things that I probably still apply to a certain degree. Uh, rule of three, belief is power, unity of mm-hmm. rings. Those are the three rules of Planescape. And it's not for nothing that its secondary tagline is philosophers with clubs <laughs> in both the social and physical sense. Belief is power. Therefore it matters what you think mm-hmm. or I say what you believe, what you think matters is another good one. One of the best ways to entree people into a bizarre and alien. This was a many times removed because it was all the mythologies of the world fit into categories assigned to what things people believed or what afterlives people felt were truest that's a lot of context to immerse new players and particularly people new to the system mm-hmm. so on let them be primes basically the part of the universe separate from all of the weirdness of the planes and let the planes come crashing down so your why now is the planes coming crashing basically down. they've got all their perfectly standard fantasy lives i'm the dinky paladin i'm the amazonis i'm the I think Kenny was one of the exceptions because he was someone sent on a mission ahead of this invasion for invading force. Like both Kens were. One, it was demons because the blood war of demons fighting demons was a big thing. And this was going to be a bit of spillage onto the prime. So Ken was playing a uh, deserter who, if you've ever watched uh, Thundercats, the original, he rolled on a random table and ended up with Vulture Man. <laughs> Which, to his credit, he acted and possessed the same obsession with devouring eyeballs. Because you could be a descendant of fiends and tieflings, and there were random tables down to how many eyes you had, etc. It was the weird old days of Tui. Kenny was another tiefling, but he had his own proclivities, and they were stumbling ahead of this massive invasion of the Blood War and trying to suss out in their quiet little town, which I... uh Named creatively Dasani, because what was nearby at the time, a bottle of water. 
This is the heyday of brilliance. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not proud of this. But it didn't go well. There was a ton of railroading. I had the NPCs be too important. Mm-hmm. Because, again, I was too concerned about making sure they were interested in the story. They're, I think we did fits and starts. The one we did in three, or maybe it was four, and got to a while before people, as often happens, had to go on their own schedules. You're space pirates. And so in that sense, similar to Teleran, what do you all want? Okay, tell me how you're getting it. <laughs> we'll go from there. Uh, when we were starting out in uh, Dungeon World, most of the small campaigns I did was the the why now is just your characters entering town. And I'd ask a bunch of questions defining the town in the first place. Uh, I knew a rough story idea, and then I'd adapt it to whatever you you chose. But um, when I we went a little deeper, and I wanted to do an actual full-on long-form campaign, because the initial one with the three big threats was supposed to be a game where I'd run one series of stories yep. with you guys. And Steven, in, um, in college at the time, would run another set of stories with his friends, but they'd be in the same world, and they'd be right. affecting each other. Um, but he never had the time to actually do the no, running, so which instead, is fair. No, let him play a villain. <laughs> but you guys didn't know that for a while. No, we eventually learned that Stephen always plays the villain. <laughs> it took us some time. <laughs> okay, look who's talking. <laughs> I tried being good. Look what happened. <laughs> but uh, when we did the... Uh, when I would, we set in for another long form, and again, this is one that ended up being destroyed by people's schedules just not fitting together. Um, but it, it was basically a world where these incredibly powerful mages had reshaped the world to their whims. And if you were not one of them, you basically had a crap sack life, um, if, especially if they decided they didn't like you. And so the, everyone was playing... Which was usually. Yeah, refugees from, from various destroyed kingdoms. The why now in that case was I wanted the characters to have a chance to survive. They had found a place of power. And, and a place that would give them some degree of safety while they were in it, as long as they were careful, which was my first big mistake in thinking <laughs> you guys could be careful. I set it on fire. Um, I set it on all the fire. <laughs> you set it on sentient fire. <laughs> no, I set it on fire. You made it sentient. You know what? You don't buy it when I make those kind of distinctions in your game. <laughs> I don't buy it when I say it either. <laughs> but it's fun to say. So um, the the why now was when they actually they didn't start out in the same place. Most of them found their way into. I split the party at the very beginning, and as they were running from their various things, they found themselves in this maze of roots and tangled and, <laughs> and, and, and caves and the ogre. And, the, and Pablo, the, 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 the Prince Pablo romanced. Yes, which was amazing and almost worked. Uh, and uh, much to Ken's chagrin. I'm so mad. <laughs> but, um, and, and so the, the why now was when they had found this place of power. Because this was the moment their lives changed into, into the possibility of something more. In most cases, the possibility of something more than a bloodstain on the ground. <laughs> My favorite why now, and this is partly because you were able to play it off of stuff we had done in earlier groups of characters in the same world. So Pablo has a habit of dying, sometimes, <laughs> at, my, sometimes at my hands, uh, sometimes because I roll poorly, and sometimes because I kind of want to see what happens. 
Sometimes I'm the storyteller when that happens, and sometimes I'm a player. <laughs> I will admit culpability. <laughs> this time I accidentally dropped him into a pool of acid. <laughs> yes, you did. And I did roll poorly enough for that to happen. This, uh, this was in one of this was in the series of Dungeon World stories uh, back from the world that was supposed to be mine and Steve's. Yeah. Basically, instead of gods, there were a bunch of sleeping dragons who were elemental in nature. There were one. There were probably gods around. Oh, I never got into them. Uh, th- these, what was important at the time, and we were poking around. There, there were three big threats going on with the world that could become major, major issues: demons, dragons, and something else. Yeah. yeah. So there, there were demons from another plane that were trying to get a foothold in the world. One of the gods, in I, I say there, there were gods, there was death, were gods, because oh, yeah. one of them was the major threat. It was a god of death. And the third one was the world dragons. The dragons that created the world. Dragons that were the size of mountain chains that, in fact, were actual mountain chains. Their, their spine right. bridges were the mountains. So, being our cautious selves, we poked around in one. And they entered a world dragon. Yes, and I found the gizzard, dropped Pablo in it. One of the smaller world dragons, but still a world dragon. We found, I found the gizzard, dropped Pablo in it, and he got squished and gooped. But uh, not before the dragon god of death made him a deal. Basically said, that's the thing. In Dungeon World, when you die, you roll last breath. And last breath is basically death comes down to you and makes you a deal. If you roll well, you pretty much get whatever you want. If you roll... Poorly, really so, poorly, you die. All of this is prefaced. Pablo was basically given a mission. Kill the world dragon the way the dreth, the god of death wants him to. He gave him a crystal to, right. to stab into the world dragon's heart. Or die. And there was essentially a time limit to this. So, long story short, the or die did not happen. He barely managed to get ahead of us and kill the dragon. Well, strictly speaking, the, the, the time limit wasn't so much a time limit as it was I'm if you... Um, if you Pass up the chance. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. But as long as there was still a chance, he wasn't going to because he right. really wanted so you kept this. on slipping him notes saying, now, 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 now. now. And it was the, the dragon got to death getting increasingly agitated with the fact that he was passing so up opportunities. So we finally chose the part of the world dragon to stab. We super stabbed it. Pablo succeeded better than us. And the dragon died. It, and then got better by becoming worse. Yes. So basically, basically what happened is they found the heart of the world dragon. Now they... Hadn't been intending to do this, but Pablo's character, because I don't remember what he was named. I don't either. Pulled out the crystal and started attacking. And they realized they could either kill Pablo's character, who was pretty healthy at that point, or they could try killing the world dragon's heart themselves. Because if it died by anything other than the crystal, it would just, like, they, it had multiple hearts. So this wouldn't kill the world dragon, but if any of the hearts fell to one of the crystals, the whole thing would be corrupted. Well, Pablo succeeded by one hit point. He basically plunged the, the, the crystal in and uh, gave them one round to kill the heart. They missed it by one point. And, and then that led to... a form, that's exactly the kind of thing death would pull. Of course it is. And so they had to do a very quick run and escape the world dragon as it's dying. So all of this is the why now to what we tried making as our last run through in that world. Where now there is an undead flying monstrosity. Basically a Dracolich yeah. the size of a mountain a chain. Giant mountain chain sized dragon zombie. You know. God monster thing. And in our last attempt before the group just schedulized couldn't get together anymore, we tried creating a group of characters, some of them survivors from this previous effort, some of them new, who are going to set forth in this brave new world. And uh I loved it for 
a few reasons. One, that I got to play a diviner who had not predicted that this would happen, but that in attempting to serve the villain of the first arc had foreshadowed that nothing but that awful poor, would follow him. That poor villain. My God, you have never seen a villain that people were more okay. like... Oh. We will get into Arcadius when we do a villain's podcast. We, we will, okay? But mm-hmm. Listeners, you know, when, when we get around, remind us. Yes. I'm sure that'll work. Precisely. We will <laughs> not be distracted by a thousand other things. But Arcadius aside... The why now for my character as a nascent diviner was waking up one day to see this monstrosity emerge from the soil and laugh because he was finally right. (laughs) I I told you! I told you this would happen! People kept on paying him to tell their futures, and the only type of future I could tell were grim portents. So, of course, they hated that I did it, and of course my character was evil. But (laughs) They challenged me to play a not-good person well and interestingly. No, what we challenged you to do was to play, like, I think the idea was, the challenge was to play a heroic person. You didn't have to, the the idea was you didn't have to play a good person, but you had to play a person who was not actively encouraging evil. So you said, okay, I'm going to choose an evil person who's trying to do something... Well, not good. You really were still not aiming for good, but you were like, I was. It's not about trying to be evil. It's not about trying. It's not. You weren't in it for yourself, really. No. You were just trying to share people. You were trying to warn people. I was trying to reveal the truth, and the truth you know, was awful. You know, you were a banshee. Yes, a harbinger and a banshee, effectively. And I also tended to take delight in causing suffering occasionally because I might as well have my fun yeah. before the world collapses. That's not a problem. No, Pablo's paladin kept on interfering with that, but. <laughs> There, it was so dire. It was almost darkly comical in some senses, but we as the players, even though the characters had changed, had created the circumstances for the story we were now engaging in. Yeah. And that sense of agency in the world, following you through as you explored it, even though we weren't all playing the same characters anymore, was so fun because it was not something any of us could have expected and it gave us an opportunity as a golden opportunity as a group. I'll tell you this right now. The story with the world dragon, the idea of turning him into a the world dragon into a dragonish was not in the cards when that story started. Nor the, I imagine was Greg's attempt to create a beer dragon to fight it. You know, you know, well, no, that's true. That was not in the cards <laughs> and that was funny. But what was in the cards at the beginning was along the lines of, okay, I knew in the area there was a world dragon and I wanted to get you guys inside because that was going to be a fun story. And I also knew that in the area there was a regular dragon and the forces of the dragon god of death were trying to capture it so they could turn it into a dracolich. Those were the elements in the, of the, the story. So it was going to be along the lines of... Um, the, the, the threat was supposed to be the world dragons waking up at the beginning. Sure. So rescuing the dragon from the, the, uh, the those forces, would, he would lead you to the, the, the world dragon. The, it just so happens that having those two forces in play, plus a, a, a last breath roll, gave me this opportunity to go, Oh, shit. Wasn't Steven also a paladin of the dragon god of death, too? That was the villainous character you were talking about earlier. Yes. And uh, you didn't know who what he was a paladin of. No, because you could choose. And paladins in that game were not necessarily good. No, they, they were not. And it was really amusing as, you're going, as you are walking through the catacombs trying to get into was, the citadel a, at the center of the city. Protect the innocent, 
or deny mercy to a non-believer. Right. And and, he, and, he, and he's helping you because we, we've got to get in to stop Arcadius. Yes. Because that was very important to stop Arcadius. And meanwhile, you're missing the fact that Stephen, and I didn't tell him to do this. This was his choice. Was was basically was, raising all the people in the catacombs as zombies to attack why the city. Stephen is always the villain. <laughs> Although amusingly, he's the one person in the Academy world who's not had a chance to play at Overlord. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. So, <laughs> but that is for another day when we do villains and antagonists, which and we will do villains and antagonists. This is probably a two-parter at this point, but Stay La Vie, it's more for you guys. All right. So, I have been uh, David Herman, a.k.a. Redness of the Brothers Herman. And uh, if you, you know, want to hear more from me or any of the Brothers Herman, check out the Geekly Oddcast, which also happens to have the episodes of Otter Worlds, which is our role-playing game side of the Geekly Oddcast. And, uh, yeah. And I'm still Jared Surf. The book's on Patreon. I'm revising the tier soon, so... At most, it's $5 a month for the book itself, though. It's a buck a month, and it's the entire thing. Story and everything. So, I give it a look. I would love to hear from all you guys on it. Take uh, a look. Probably cut off after. <laughs> you asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Seuss me at the end, will you? Yeah, not reading Rainbow. Oh, even worse. Boo. And without your, La- your Jordi LaForge hair clip, either. LeVar Burton. Oh, <laughs> Yes, be a Trekkie on me, though, <laughs> Signing off. <laughs> so that's it for the show. If you enjoyed it, you can leave a review on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. Or you can show your support on Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash And of course, if there's a story you want to share or something that's inspired you, you're welcome to tag us online at hashtag UBTigers. Hope to see you all next time. There, the thing I almost did is a, is a bit gag at the end there. There's an NPC in uh, Inquisition for Dragon Age where you get to choose your specializations depending on whether you know a mage, a fighter, or a wizard. And if you're a wizard, the three options are a necromancer, stabby wizard knight, or rift mage. I get to use the power of ripping apart space and time. So Why wouldn't you choose that one? Because it actually isn't affect the bosses. Oh, well, screw that then. Whereas the other one gives you exploding barriers and energy swords and ridiculousness. Okay. Fair enough, yeah. you convince me. So uh, I was talking to the... You can talk to the NPCs who give you the quest to choose a specialization. And my favorite one, honestly, is the Rift Mage, whose name is Your Trainer. And when she introduces herself, she goes, I am Your Trainer. And your first dial option is, sure, but uh, what's your name? I am Your Trainer. Yes, but what do you do? I am Your Trainer. Ah. Yes, but what do you train me in? I am Your Trainer. And eventually you suss out that she doesn't have enough space in her brain left to oh. remember any non-essential details because she has dedicated all of it to learning this new and disgustingly invasive magic. Oh, my God. So her name is irrelevant. She is your trainer. Oh, God. <laughs> Way to take a joke and turn it into a tragic, tragic element. It really was. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon 
or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.